rather than preaching at you or to you, I want to have a conversation with you this morning. I want to begin that conversation by asking, have you ever had a Humpty Dumpty moment? I had one, and I felt like an egg thrown up against a rough brick wall that just kind of slithered down the surface. The yolk was no longer distinct. The, um, the white was running, the shell was broken, and so was I. And uh, I couldn't figure out why. My life was going great. You know, my, uh, my wife hadn't left me. My dog hadn't died. My pickup wasn't stolen, and I wasn't in jail. You know, what's not to like? So uh, I hunted down a counselor friend of mine, and as we began to talk about it, he said to me, tell me a little bit about the last six months of your life. Well, Valentine's Day of that year, my wife and I had been in New Jersey as I was candidating for a new church there. We returned back to Minnesota, and two weeks later, the church called and extended the call. And of February beginning of March, we began to try to get our house ready to sell. And we managed that about the 10th, I think, of March, or excuse me, the 10th of April. Um, and then we had our third child. I forgot to mention my wife was pregnant. We had our third child, our, our last child, the end of April, 29th of April. And we moved halfway across the country from Minnesota to New Jersey, Memorial Day weekend. We got rear-ended in that trip, and we made it to New Jersey. I started a new job the first week of June and turned 40 the middle of June. And he said to me, that's a lot of stress points. I thought, how can that be stress points? Those are all good, aren't they? Well, yeah, but even good things bring stress points. And if that's the case, can you imagine how depleted and stressed we and not just us alone, but we the people of God are after two years of COVID. There are statistics that uh, suggest that, that 40 to 50% of people who were part of church before COVID are no longer attending church. And you know in your own lives the kind of stress, the kind of margins that are gone. It's, it's, it's kind of like, at least when we were younger, Christmas would come and we wanted to be generous with our kids and generous with family and generous with ourselves. And we had a great Christmas. And then January came and the credit card bill arrived. <laughs> and suddenly you realize that there wasn't a lot of margin in your budget. That somehow or other, um, all of those things that you, quote, bought had to be paid for. In that case, the money. But, but all of the things that we have bought over the last two years, whether it's job or loss of job, whether it's a sickness in the family or just being afraid of being sick, whether, you know, whether it's uh, friends that we've lost or family members to, uh, to, to the disease, whether it's just been, been the fear, you know, masking everywhere and looking like a bandit when you walk into uh, any kind of an establishment. All of those pressures have left us vulnerable and depleted. And so now we are not only physically exhausted, we are spiritually vulnerable. We have arrived at a point like January bill paying. There just isn't much margin left. And so I don't know, as I say, how many of you are having Humpty Dumpty moments now or how many of you had Humpty Dumpty moments then, but 
We need the experience of God. We are deeply, deeply depleted. And we need to be built up. We need to be renewed. We need to be refilled. We need God to, to nourish us and to replenish us in the very depths of our being. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. I want to read that to you. Paul writes, he has written about having a ministry to the Gentiles. And he says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We need that filling in our lives and in our hearts. And so today I want to talk to you about the issue of Prayer, the question of prayer. If you've got your bulletin, you might want to follow along. I've kind of broken it down into four different areas. The problem of prayer, the uh, practice of prayer, the purpose of prayer, and then the power of prayer. And so if you'll turn to your scriptures today, I want to read Luke chapter 11, 1 through 13, uh, which is our scripture for the day. The ESV titles this section, The Lord's Prayer. Just follow along with me as we read it. You're going to notice there's some differences in this than that which we usually pray. And that's one of the reasons that I didn't conclude the pastoral prayer with the Lord's Prayer. Because we want to think about it anew today. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's bow as we begin our look together at God's word. Lord, you have spoken, you have revealed yourself to us, you have invited us to come and make ourselves available to you. So Father, we come in these moments to hear your word, 
We ask that you would open our ears and our hearts and conform our lives to it. We rejoice in your love for us, revealed in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So as Jesus taught his disciples, teach us to pray. I want to say to you this morning that that prayer is the means by which our souls are made full in and through and with the fullness of God, just as Ephesians 3 said. But typically there's a problem with prayer. There's a problem with prayer. Uh, It is not for nothing. If you have your Bibles, turn back to chapter 10 of Luke. And the last verses there are about... Our favorite homemakers, Martha and Mary, right? And Luke uses this hinge, if you will, between chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Jesus' teaching on prayer to address, if you will, the busyness of Martha compared to the quiet of Mary. There's Martha bustling around trying to get things ready, and Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, You're busy with many things, but only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the better thing. Mary is resting. You see, too often we approach prayer like it was a set of household chores. Now, I can speak from experience about chores because I grew up on a farm. And uh, my dad was 45 when I was born. And I was the only boy. So I had the blessing of being the expected farmer of the future. I also had the curse of being the only boy and being six years old. And I kind of like at least sleep until 7 in the morning. My dad would get up at 5.30 and get out and start the milking and the chores and that sort of thing. And when he came in at 7 o'clock for breakfast, I was already in trouble as I woke up. My, my life started each day two hours behind. There were, there were just things I should have been doing in his mind as a six-year-old. But you can imagine growing up, with the daily recognition that you start life two hours behind. There are always chores to do. When I was a a chaplain uh, in Minnesota, I remember we would have a weekly debrief with our uh, leader. He was an older ordained Presbyterian minister. And we would do a case study with him. And one of my first case studies was of a farmer who had been injured in an accident and was in the hospital a good distance away from his family. So I had a good interaction with this guy, a lot I could relate to him with. And so I wrote that up as my case study. And as I went over that with the uh, uh, director of the chaplaincy program, he stopped me and he said, Stuart, the problem with you is you just have too many chores to do when you go into a room. I, I was taken aback. I thought that was my job, to go in there and do something. I mean, I was the pastor. I was the chaplain, right? No, he said, you just have too many chores to do. It took me a couple years to actually process what he said to me, but I began to realize what that was about, that, that just like me as a farm kid, just like Mary or Martha getting ready, that, that our prayers can become a to-do list for God. Prayer is on our to-do list, but our prayers are a to-do list for God. Lord, here's the things we need you to get done today. I mean, these are the things I have to do, and prayer is one of them, but this is what I need you to do, and that's our prayer time. And that's not how it's supposed to work, and that's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, that uh, without realizing it, prayer can go 
from being a blessing to part of busyness to becoming a burden to being, I hate to say this, but for some of us, maybe many of us, just a bore. Oh, I got to do my prayers. I got to say my prayers. And that can happen to us. And we lose sight of what it is that prayer is for. So we need a new understanding, a new kind of approach to prayer. And, and this is what Jesus gives his disciples. Now, I want to say the purpose of prayer. This is probably not original with me, but I read so many places and so many things and put it together. Prayer is giving attention to God so we can access the presence of God to know the fullness of God. Let me say that again. Giving attention to God so we can access the presence of God to know the fullness of God. You see, we, we are, if you think about it, we're amphibians. You know, kind of like a frog. We, we are made to live in both a spiritual reality and in the rest of the world around us, the physical reality, which is the creation. And, and, and like a frog, we move from one to the other. Now, if you take a frog and put him in water, maybe you've got an aquarium at home, and don't give him a little branch to crawl out on, he'll die because he's amphibian. He's not aquatic. On the other hand, if you have a terrarium and you put a frog in there and there's no water to swim in, he's going to die there as well. He's an amphibian. He needs to be able to move between those two environments. And you and I are the same way. We, we move in the environment of the Spirit because we are made for relationship with God, but we are creatures. We are part of the created reality. We have morning and evening. We do have chores. We have loved ones. We have work responsibilities. We have health issues. We have finances. We have the cares of this world. We have all of those sort of things within which we need to move, in which... Hopefully, we exhibit the grace and the mercy and, and the love of Christ. But, but that's the real world. Now, not to say that God isn't the real world. He's just the spiritual reality. And as amphibians, we need to move back and forth. We have to be able to do that in order to survive. The problem that we have in this moment of our history, in this midst of pandemic time, whatever it is, and there's always a new variant kicking up that's going to threaten to pull us back into that craziness of the last two years. There isn't quiet. In fact, this world is just noisy. And whether it's the noise of politics or, or, or the noise of economic news or the noise of family stress or the noise of, of stress at work or, or just you know noise because we turn on our headphones or serious radio, it's just noise. We don't have margins of quiet in which we can access God. But, but that's what we need. We need quiet to be able to access God, to, to attend to God so we can access his presence in order to know his fullness. Because the soul, you and I, as amphibians, that, that spiritual part of us, the soul, is, is healed, it's replenished, it's filled in real union with God. And so we ask for his peace, just as Paul there in that passage in Ephesians 3. I pray that you may have the Spirit of God, that he might fill your inner being with his strength, with his grace. 
And so Jesus' disciples, on to the practice of prayer, asked them, or asked him, how to pray. Now, if you turn back to there, back to Luke chapter 11, I want to notice this. Jesus didn't give his disciples a routine. He didn't give them a process. He didn't really give them a lesson. He gave them a model which focuses on the Father. I uh, struggle with my golf game. Some of you may have this experience, some of you may not. But I've taken a lesson or two. And, and when you take a lesson, the pro, the teaching guy, looks at how you do it, and then he says, no, you need to move your hands this way, or you need to turn your... In other words, he, he corrects you. He corrects you. And until you do it correctly, you haven't got your golf swing down. That is not what Jesus does to his disciples. He's not showing them how to put their hands on the club. He's not showing them how to turn their upper body. He's not showing them how to do anything. He's giving them a model for prayer. And so I want to go back and walk through this passage with you just to look at it, perhaps from a different perspective. Lord, teach us to pray, says verse 1, as Jesus taught his disciples. Now, recognize that throughout his ministry, of course, Jesus prayed all the time. He, you know, he prayed when he was tempted in the wilderness. He prayed when he called his disciples to himself. You know, he, he prayed when he was teaching to the crowds. He prayed in the face of the needs. He, he prayed in Gethsemane. He prayed on the cross. He prayed. His life was full of prayer. And the circumstances differed and the needs differed. What was constant was Jesus' reliance upon the Father. And so he says to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Now, just two things to notice there. The focus is on the being of God. Who is God? Our Heavenly Father. That's what we keep in mind when we pray. And he is not like us. He's not our good buddy. You know, he's not our friend in that sense. He is our heavenly father. Hallowed be your name. You are separate. You are completely unique. You are the Lord of all things, the creator of all things, the sovereign majesty over all things, the holy and righteous triune God. That's who you are. And when we pray, we do so with that before us. Hallowed be your name. You know, it's no sort of I'll use this. It's not a fist bump to God, all right? When it's, hey, big fella, how you doing? No. It is our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Not mine, not my parties, not my nations, not my historical tradition, not my ethnic group. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your perfect and good will, may it be realized in the affairs of this world. That's where we begin in prayer. When we grow quiet and come before God, that's who he is and what we want in him, from him. We want his will to be done, his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We want our daily bread. Give us each day. Some translations give us our bread for the next day. It would bring to mind the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness. Each day, each night, the manna would fall and they would gather enough for the next day. For the morning. For the day. 
not enough for the next day. So it was the daily bread, that which God provides for the needs each day. And that's, that's what we recognize, that we depend upon God. Our, our job does not give us our life or our living. God gives us our living through our job. God gives us our life through our circumstances, our situation. And so when we pray, give us our daily bread, we are acknowledging that all that we have, all that we are, comes from his hand. He is the one to whom we turn for our physical needs. Again, we're amphibians. We live in a real world with real hunger, real health issues, real economic deeds. And also spiritually, forgive us our sins. Now, Luke uses sins. Matthew uses transgressions. Uh, The Greek audience would not have understood debts, which would have been much more familiar to a Hebrew audience. But but Luke writes sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. There is that amphibian move from needs for daily life into forgiving our sins to, to dealing with our spiritual lives. Lord, we look at the cross, we see the love of Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, says Romans 5.8. And so we, we move into that recognition when we pray. We're before a God who has forgiven us, and therefore, how can we not forgive others? If we recognize ourselves at the foot of the cross and the needs that we had and continue to have as sinners, and in light of the Father's forgiveness of us through the blood of His Son, Jesus, how can we hold grudges and debts against others? We, we, are, we are caused in, in the presence of God to reflect on the relationships that we have out in the world around us. It's not just God and me, but it's God in me in the world, and I go out into that world. But that world is also a place of amphibian life. And in this case, the, the amphibian, if you will, is a water snake. It is the enemy, and he is there. And so Jesus says, lead us not to temptation. Father, do not bring me into circumstances where the evil one can prey upon my weaknesses, upon my vulnerabilities. I think that's another thing uh, that has happened. I was watching a, a, a blog of John Eldridge recently, and he said, in this time, in this moment, where we're out of margin, we're vulnerable spiritually. And so a heartache happens. It might be job, it might be health, it might be a relationship, but a heartache happens, and suddenly God is not for us. Since, since we haven't had our, our souls renewed in God, since we haven't spent time in quiet before the Lord, since we haven't acknowledged him and his place in our lives, all of a sudden the heartache overwhelms us, and the tempter says, you see, God doesn't love you. It's the same temptation from the Garden of Eden, the same one. God doesn't really care about you. In fact, he's trying to keep you from the good stuff. And so the voice of the tempter enters in, and we find ourselves now saying, I'm done. God's God's not doing it for me anymore. And who knows how much of the 40 to 50% church attendance that's fallen away is precisely because of that very kind of thing. A heartache entered in, and there was no margin and no fullness and no quiet. And so they gave away. But notice that Jesus goes on. He doesn't just give us the words. He gives us a couple illustrations. 
Verse 5, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves. You know, I've got out-of-town company, refrigerator's empty, and really they need something to eat, so can, can you give it to me? And the answer is, listen, we're already in bed here. Now, the practice would have been in, you know, ancient Israel, one bedroom, kind of everybody's in the bed, all the kids are there too. Man, you, you know what a problem this is going to be? Do you know how much you're asking of me? Like, forget it. I'm not going to give you any. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, friend doesn't rate high enough on the scale. I'm not giving you anything. But because of impudence. Now, many of our translations have translated this as persistence. I want to suggest something different. Some commentators suggest this. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was an absolute virtue. You recall when, when Job, or when Abraham was looking over Sodom and Gomorrah, the three angels that came to him, he immediately provided sustenance for them. Hospitality was a requisite. Your, your very reputation depended upon hospitality. The reputation of your village, the reputation perhaps of your larger society, depended upon hospitality. So rather than it being the persistence of the friend this word is in greek shamelessness shamelessness i don't want to bring shame on myself on my house my family my village because of shamelessness he the one in bed will rise and give him whatever he needs now i find that that seems to make sense if you look at if you look at matthew's presentation of Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer. It's in the midst of his saying, look, don't be like the Gentiles who just keep throwing up words. They think, they think they'll be heard for all their words. You know, don't be like the person that just prays these monotonous prayers over and over again. Jesus is speaking against repetition, repetition, repetition in Matthew. It would, would be strange if in Luke he is recommending repetition, repetition, repetition. I think as we follow through, you'll see that it makes much more sense. And I tell you, he says, what? Ask, and it'll be given to you. Why? Because God's glory is in his benevolence to undeserving creatures. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, e even as unbelievers, we are testaments to the goodness of God. But as believers, we know especially his goodness. We are those who have been redeemed from, from the darkness and from the guilt of our own sins. And so ask, and it'll be given to you. From whom? From the Father who loves to give. Because his glory is in his giving to us. He says to the Israelites in the Old Testament, you know, you, you do not come to me and ask. That's your condemnation. You know, instead you dig cisterns that can't even hold water, and you don't come to me, the fount of living water. And for that, I find you guilty. Come and ask. It will be given to you. Seek. You will find. Knock. It will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Yes, why? Be because of God's, and, and the word shame doesn't apply, but because God is above all the ultimate host. The one who meets the needs of visitors, who meets the needs of the, if you will, in the analogy, the unexpected. You know, 
the, the, the ones who didn't deserve, the ones who weren't invited to the party, but who showed up. God's hospitality, his graciousness, his goodness, his generosity is poured out upon them. Everyone who asks receives and who seeks finds and one who knocks will be open. Why? What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg, a scorpion? In other words, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, that's the flow. Jesus says, attend to God. Attend to God. Because prayer is attending to the being of God to access his presence in order to know his fullness. Prayer is attending to the being of God to access his presence in order to know his fullness. So we come to God in quiet, seeking what he gives, not seeking to give him either our labors or our list. That's not what prayer is. We don't, we don't offer prayer as a labor that makes us worthy, and we, we don't go to God and say, you know, snap our fingers, we want this, we need that. We go to God to be fooled and nourished because what it means to be alive spiritually is to be indwelt by God, to be living with him. Why does God answer prayer? Not just to meet our needs, but to do so in a way that brings glory to his name. We were living in Minnesota. My second son, Bryce, was probably five years old, maybe four, four and a half. I was downstairs in the kitchen having my quiet time one morning, relatively early, and he comes toddling down in his little footy pajamas. Hey, Bryce, how are you doing? He crawls up on my lap, and I'm continuing my quiet time, and he falls asleep. And I stopped in the middle of my devotions and I thought to myself, I'm so delighted that he's here with me, just sitting on my lap. And he's so comfortable that he just fell asleep. Why do I feel guilty when I fall asleep during my quiet time? Am I who can rejoice in my son, a better father than the heavenly father? Does God not delight in our presence with him, just being in him, being so confident and comfortable and at peace that we can fall asleep on his lap? I've never thought, forgotten that. My, my son is 45, 43 years old now, going through some difficult times in his life. And I want so much to pull him back on my lap and hold him and let him go to sleep. Because I love him. You, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give to those who ask the Holy Spirit? Now, Matthew's presentation that says give good things, but, but the Holy Spirit, of course, is the best thing, the best thing. So that's the practice of prayer. If we keep in mind that, that, that God delights in our falling asleep on his lap, why would we not want to be with him when we're in our Humpty Dumpty moments? When, you know, shapeless and formless and aimless and almost hopeless, we just find ourselves kind of running down the wall of life. And, and we need to be refilled and reformed and refashioned. So that's the power of prayer. That's my last point. We are encouraged in and equipped for our amphibian lives in this world through prayer as Jesus taught. It's, it's not something we do to gain God's favor or influence him to do something for us. It's putting ourselves in the place where we can receive what God wants to give us. 
To know God is to have our souls healed through union with the living Christ. I want to turn you to Philippians chapter 4, just real quick. Philippians chapter 4, verses 5a. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, that ultimately is the power of prayer, that God guards us by his very presence in us and gives us a peace beyond all understanding. Beyond all understanding. I want to close in prayer by having you turn with me to a prayer in our hymnal. A pattern for prayer is on page 633. And while you're finding that, put your finger in page 621 because that will be our final hymn. A pattern for prayer. I'm going to just read the regular print. You read the bold. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let me ask you to stand for our final hymn.